This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Z Prime On the Grid. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Dylan. I actually have some exciting, I guess, personal, a mix of personal and professional news. I started reading the book Trinity by Leon Uris um, about a week and a half ago, and I had been trying really hard to get my family members or friends to read it with me because it is... Um, it's one of those books that's like a journey. So I wanted somebody to read it with me. So I tweeted that I was looking for folks to read this book with me and two people responded. So I have started a book club um, for my first book being Trinity. And I'm really excited about that. A new virtual book club has come to life. That's awesome, Erin. But I'm glad to hear that you've got uh, that you've got some cool socializing thing going on during the ongoing coronavirus quarantine, uh, which unfortunately is going to be uh, is going to be a part of our conversation today as it as it has been our in our previous two episodes, because it's still affecting everyone globally. Um, And so to talk with us about about global issues in this in this era, we have returning to the show, Dr. Carolyn Kassan, who is an academic director and clinical professor of global affairs at the Center for Global Affairs at NYU School of Professional Studies, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Payne Institute for Earth Resources. Carolyn, thank you for being back on the show. How are you holding up? Dylan, thank you so very much for, for having me back again. I'm really I'm I'm really delighted. And Erin, congratulations on getting your 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 book club off the ground. I think in, in these times we need to find as many opportunities as possible to uh, to build community, even if we can't be doing it in person. Um, I'm doing okay. Yeah, you know, um, interesting times, challenging times, uh, but I'm grateful to be uh, to be healthy and to have my two sons with me and. Uh, you know, to I'm um, very. I also feel very grateful to be able to uh, continue working and teaching. Uh, yeah, and you're you're based in New York, so and that's been a pretty hot spot uh, these past few weeks. How how is New York doing? What's it like on the ground in there? You know, for anyone that has experienced New York, um, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised in the Bronx. You know, I spent many years living overseas, but you know, I've been here pretty you know, pretty much full time since 2005. You know, in my lifetime, I've never experienced uh, New York as it is today. It is a, um, it's a quiet city. It's a city that um, there's very, very little traffic. There's, um, you know, New York is kind of known as the, you know, cultural capital and um, food capital and, you know, with just so many restaurants and, um, you know, entertainment opportunities and all of those are closed. And it's, um, it's like deeply sad. Like it's, it's, it's really hard to sort of see so much of New York shut down. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, I think we're kind of a, a city that is very resilient and, you know, people are coming together and volunteering uh, where they can. And I think like many different parts of the country and the world at seven o'clock, you know, many people come out and they, you know, they acknowledge the healthcare workers. Um, so there's, I think it's, I think the started in Italy, um, 
and now every night at seven o'clock you hear um you hear uh dishes you hear different things you hear people singing you hear clapping and again it's just you know a kind of a a, a public um acknowledgement and thank you for the uh for the extraordinary work that our healthcare workers are doing and putting themselves on the front lines I've seen some of those videos, Carolyn, going around the internet, and they really are, you know, like this nice act of like solidarity, something to, you know, bring us together, even though we physically need to keep our distance from each other, which kind of, I want I did want to ask, do you feel like New Yorkers are taking social distancing seriously? I know Governor Cuomo came out and said, you know, I really want people to try a little bit harder, but in your experience, you know, has that been the case? Are you seeing social distancing being taken seriously? And what has kind of been your perception on that? Sure, it's a great question. I mean, I can speak from where I am. I'm currently on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I would say yes, very much so. The few stores that are open, we have a grocery store that's you know, on 110th Street and Broadway, and they're up there only letting limited people in at any one time. Um, and when you're checking out, you know, you have to keep six feet between you and the next customer. The same thing with any of the pharmacies that are in the neighborhood. Um, I have a two and a half year old uh, lab lab and I walk him in the park you know about three times a day and and that's where I think it, it really kind of comes home for me because people like even in a park situation are keeping six feet distance mm -hmm. from each other and you know all the playgrounds are for the most part shut down or there's a sign saying you know kind of play at your own risk so you know most families are not 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 having their children go into the playgrounds some of them have not been sterilized you know, with that said, you you know, this morning I was in the park and there were about four guys who who were friends who were exercising together. And, you know, there's something also nice to see, you know, how people are, you know, responding and at the same time adhering to the um, to the restrictions. And then this this I would say that, you know, my experience on the Upper West Side is is very uh, similar to what you'd find throughout many different parts of the city. That said, I think it's only um, fair to acknowledge that in many ways I'm very privileged. You know, I have um, I have an apartment live with my two children. Um, but in some cases, some different parts of the boroughs, you have multiple families sharing one space and they have to go out to work, you know, either they're healthcare workers or, you know, they're in situations that they're working in our grocery stores and they don't have that ability to work from home. And I think in those types of situations, the vulnerabilities and risks are greater. Um, so I think even when you look at New York um, statistics, where you see, for example, Queens and the Bronx, where they're actually the numbers are surpassing that of Manhattan. I think that is because the the option to social distance is is much more um, is much more constrained. There are many more sort of um, challenges associated with that level of social distancing that is um, that is being required. Absolutely, I would say you know I'm seeing the same thing here in Austin. Still, lots of folks trying to be out in you know, open public spaces as much as they can, getting their walks in, getting their runs, bike rides in, but still trying to practice social distancing. I've also, you know, seen those place markers on the floor at 
grocery stores, you know, stand six feet away, even, I think, you know, it really does help the just these small kind of things, if it's putting a piece of tape down, you know, just to make people aware. I think a lot of the time, um, people just, you know, we're just not used to doing this. So it's just kind of making folks aware, you know, just try to stay six feet away. Uh, But things certainly have changed a bit (laughs) since the last time you were on. And one of those things um, is definitely education and how that has changed in the midst of all this. And we talked about the roles and obligations of educators when you were on the show last. So how have you and other educators handled the closure of physical school locations um, and this transition into kind of online learning and more digital platforms? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a question that we've all been sort of confronting over the last, you know, at least for New York University over the last about three and a half weeks. Um, But I think it New York University's um, example very much mirrors universities across the country and also high schools and elementary schools across the country. You know, just about three weeks ago, NYU made the announcement that um, we were going to go uh, remote, that we would um, we would move all classes to remote learning. And that has been in effect since um, it was just three weeks ago yesterday, actually, that we went remote. And um, it's been because of the speed at which we had to do it, we didn't have, you know, a lot of lead time to prepare faculty. So faculty who had never done an online course, you know, who had never taught an online course were sort of now basically they had no other option but to um, but to teach online. So, you know, from from what we did at, at NYU, um, NYU already had a um had already made a decision starting actually it was early in the fall that we were going to have Zoom as a platform, as an optional platform. So we were very fortunate that we already had the, the Zoom uh, functionality that we all could access. So, you know, over about a week period and it's ongoing, there's been like an intensive array of webinars and online training that has been offered to both um, faculty and to students to how to optimize, you know, teaching through Zoom and learning on Zoom. Uh, So, you know, that again, it's been a, you know, a learning experience for all of us. But I would say, you know, and being the academic director and, you know, managing two graduate programs and having, you know, 14 full-time faculty and over, you know, 50 adjunct faculty that for the most part, you know, faculty have really, um, you know, have really taken up the challenge and are doing their very best on, you know, what is a new platform and a new um, modality for them. And I would say that's kind of the case across the board. Um, even, you know, teachers that I'm speaking to who teach at the much, you know, elementary school level and the middle school level and high school that, you know, this was such a fast transition. Um, but I think everyone kind of understands that we're all in this challenging boat together and we all have to work together and find ways so that our our students can continue to learn, continue in their learning and that they can continue progressing in their studies so that there's not this stop 
uh, in their degree pathways. I, I don't want to downplay kind of like the human element challenges. How do you make sure that your students stay motivated to keep up with online curriculum? And then when you talk about, you know, elementary schools, high schools, you face a lot of other human challenges, especially in lower socioeconomic communities when, you know, maybe these kids are trying to help, you know, support their parents who are still going to work or, you know, in in Texas, I think a lot of the time, um, or one of the big challenges they're facing is a lot of these kids are now staying home with their grandparents and a lot of um, older generations in Texas, given, you know, are sharing a border with Mexico, those grandparents only speak Spanish. And so now these children are staying home with their grandparents who only speak Spanish, but their curriculum is in English. And so how do you make sure that they can continue on with their education? You know, I, they, there certainly seems like there are a lot of you know challenges that folks are facing, but I, and I, I think we, you know, we could talk about this all day, but I do want to focus on something you brought up, which was you know, that you are fortunate enough to have access to resources. You know, the digital divide is becoming very apparent. There are a lot of folks who don't even have access to phones, tablets, computers to do this. And even if you do, do you have access to Wi-Fi or broadband to even connect? So how has NYU kind of been tackling that challenge, the access to digital platforms and Wi-Fi and broadband? Yeah, I mean, so many great questions there. So initially when it was announced that we would go remote, you know, the university sort of asked different, asked all the divisions to say, you know, what is your preparedness? Like, are you ready as a program um, to, to go remote? Are your faculty prepared? Are your students prepared? Can you do a kind of a survey to sort of check on that, um, on that ability to be able to so quickly move to remote uh, teaching and learning. And honestly, you know, there was a, um, the university made sure that, you know, students who might not have a personal laptop, that, you know, they made laptop loans available, that they, um, you know, that they each program tried to to make sure that students had and and also administrators had um, had laptops that they could work with but you know they couldn't they couldn't hit every student and they couldn't make sure that you know um, every student was um, was covered and and what's been a huge challenge for university like NYU and I can sort of speak more directly to um, to sort of what I'm, what I've seen with my students is that, you know, NYU is a very is a very international university. So, you know, I've had some students who have returned to their home countries, um, and they're doing remote uh, learning from there. And you know, there may be 14 hours difference between, you know, when we meet for class and it's, you know, two in the morning, for example, when they're, when they're being asked to get online. And, you know, for other students, they have, you know, very spotty internet access. So if you look at, for example, India right now is on a 21 day lockdown. Um, You know, any student that, for example, is back in India um, is possibly confronting some, some significant challenges with staying online. And, you know, I think there's, you know, again, something that I've seen and even in my, you know, I have a student who had to go back to Arkansas and he said he's, he's really, really, really struggling with, um, with 
his assignments because his internet goes down quite, um, you know, many times during the day. So this idea of as much as we're emphasizing academic continuity, there's a whole other like reality that many of our students confront. And, you know, again, I think maybe one of the biggest ones in addition, of course, you know, sort of acknowledging that, you know, um, that the technology and the internet reliability and having access is, you know, is a major, major challenge. But there's also just the emotional side that, you know, students are scared. They are, um, many feel debilitated by the situation. Um, if they are living alone or, you know, their roommates have all left the city, they may, again, they weren't able to get back to their home countries in time before flights stop so they you know are living you know very solitary lives without a lot of um, social interaction other than what they might get in a class um, and I think there's a big future question here so one of the things that you know a question that I'm hearing from the number of my graduate students is that of you know what happens when you know their internships have evaporated and their job offers are no longer, you know, those offers have gone away. And there's a lot of concern as to, you know, what's next. And of course, you know, the big question all of us confront is how long does this go on for, right? We don't have this kind of like answer that as long as we can get to May and then on the other side of May, you know, there's something that is going to be much more sort of back to a, a, a normal maybe that we're much more comfortable with. So I think that uncertainty is um, is really hard. And I think then it sort of infiltrates into across the board, all levels of, of learning that, um, that students are facing and parents are facing, right? You know, not knowing how long that they're going to have to manage both working from home as well as, you know, managing their children's at-home learning. Um, I mean, I'm definitely, you know, I definitely experience that in terms of trying to both be, you know, online for work and teaching, but at the same time, making sure that, you know, my two kids are keeping up with the work that they're supposed to be doing for school. So, you know, I do think it's a, um, the challenges are many and depending on, you know, where you are and um, it will, some of those challenges will be, will be different. So it's both, as I said, the, the, some of the tech challenges as well as the sort of emotional challenges of how we develop a, this kind of new relationship with uncertainty and how we navigate, navigate this period. I, we're still very much in response territory so but so this might be jumping the gun a bit but uh are are you seeing in the upper levels of your uh of your university the, the beginnings of discussions around um how your inst how your institution is going to have to have to change long term as a result of this well, you have asked the question that many of my colleagues are asking. You know, I think at this point, and again, this is just, I think, my university, but I'm sure most universities are, are kind of waiting before they make longer term plans because of the uncertainty of, you know, how long we will be sort of um, kind of have shelter in place restrictions on. So, you know, we have 
we have very clear guidance through for the end through the end of the semester. So through the end of May, for example, you know, we know that all teaching and learning will happen remotely. We know that all university offices are closed and that, you know, all all staff are working remotely. Um, last week, which it, it, it totally made me cry because I, I know how how special like uh, the senior year is and for students who are graduating. But NYU, like most universities across the country, can, canceled all graduation um, festivities and ca- canceled convocation. So we're kind of at the point where we're clear up until the end of May. And beyond that, there's we're not sure. Um, so we haven't made a decision on terms of what the fall will look like. But I think, you know, faculty are, of course, thinking about the possibility that, you know, we may have to continue with uh, remote learning and that we may have we may not have the incoming class that we anticipated having. And, you know, again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, and this is kind of a, a big question, I think, for many universities that have large international student contingents is, you know, right now there's no visa processing happening. So if you are a, you know, if, if your plan is to be an international student studying in the United States come the fall, when does that processing open up again? Like, when can you um, apply? And will there be, will there be, hopefully, hopefully, if, you know, if we're able to open up and be in person, will there be kind of expedited processing for international students so that they can, you know, they can, you know, go to their the universities where, you know, they want to study. So I think, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of unknowns that I think the university has yet to um, explicitly address because I think they're also looking for some sort of guideposts, whether it be from the federal government or if it be from, you know, the city and state level in terms of what it looks like as to when when things might be able to, um, to reopen and when, there's, when it's safe to reopen. It's interesting how what's affecting your student your students, you know, not to be too analytical about people going through some something hard, but what's in, interesting is how that what you've described the situations for your for your students is sort of my, a microcosm of how uh, a lot of different uh, a lot of different people are being uh, affected by uh, by this crisis that like that just the senses of of uncertainty of not knowing exactly where they stand either you know in school with school or with work i mean i i know substitute teachers uh retail workers who feel a lot like your a lot like your students do uh there's people who are isolated and can't go home or can't you know see people that live far away even if it's that far away is just somewhere else in the united states like i know people who aren't going to be able to you know be home for uh for a parent's for a parent's birthday, or even if a parent gets sick, so I, I, I it, there's very, they're very much. I, I agree with your sense that uh, the best thing we can do is, you know, reinforce that reinforce the sense of togetherness, the sense of community within our own in groups, but also just you know with with the in group of us all being citizens uh, going through this. 
just as a quick, you know, I was yesterday I was listening, the Financial Times had, um, uh, they were doing a webinar with some of their um, economists and one of their econ- economists who's been, you know, a longstanding writer for the FT, Martin Wolf. And, you know, he, he said that his hope, his hope that, I can have it here. I ha- I wrote it down. He said his hope is at the end of all of this that we will need a really, really um, great party. And he said it, but also as kind of an economist in terms of that, you know, hopefully young people who, you know, who will who will sort of see this as, you know, we are very interdependent as a world. And this, you know, the, you know, the coronavirus has sort of put that into sharp technicolor, right? Like, no, there is no, there's no country that is literally figuratively immune. And so, you know, does this kind of unleash this, uh, this incredible sense of creativity and openness that, you know, he believes could be, you know, as a, as we think about sort of what's next or, you know, what a rebound may look like that, um, that it will be something that kind of also unleashes a sense of kind of like this new beginning, like new opportunities. Um, so we'll have to, of course, wait and see, but it's always interesting to sort of see how a sort of a more, you know, as an economist, you know, how he's sort of thinking about just that human side of what, uh, what people's responses will be when they, when they kind of regain some of the um, sort of the, the freedoms of movement and freedoms of, you know, um, of choice, yeah. right? When, when things return to a, a kind of a more, a more normal situation. It's, it's, fu- it's funny just because uh, while, while you were saying that it, the, the spark of recognition popped into my brain that, I, so I'm, I like everyone else. I'm under quarantine. I'm also uh, going on a going on a diet right now. That wasn't planned that it was going to happen during quarantine, but that's just you know how how the timeline worked out. But I, uh, funny enough, being under quarantine is actually a lot like being on a diet. Uh, I guess a social diet in that you're gonna do, you're gonna do better if you set a schedule if you set a schedule for yourself and you find appropriate substitutes to fit the to fix those itches and, it, and I was just thinking about that big that big party your friend was talking about is going to kind of be like the day after you quit your diet the day after the quarantine is lifted we're all going to binge on carbs or <laughs> by carbs I mean a keg probably <laughs> yeah no absolutely absolutely and I, I you know it's it's funny because someone else I know is kind of doing this big kind of she's gone on a diet she's given up alcohol she's exercising she's doing like you know zoom zoom classes and she said it's she said she's finding it much easier than at any other time because she can't say yes to dinner reservations right you know she can't go out for a glass of wine at the wine bar like there's a lot of things that would always sort of be her downfall in the past are no longer sort of diversions or you know things that she can do now so she's finding it much easier than than ever before i think that that actually has made that sort of sort of thing a, a lot easier so there are you know definitely hopefully some silver linings out of this like, like what you said uh that hopefully when we're on the other side of this we'll have a better understanding of each other i mean it's it's un- really unfortunate that it took that it's taking something like this to to help 
enforce that notion. But I, I mean, I, I just hopefully that's, that, that's where we'll end up. So I want to shift gears here because we talked a lot about a lot about the, the human side, the on the ground side. I want to talk a little bit about more industry stuff, uh, especially because we, we haven't touched on that as much since this crisis started on the show. And, I, and I'm, I'm we've been really interested to see how um, the energy industry, both in the U.S. and on a global scale, has, has developed. You uh, you actually wrote a piece for us uh, this past week. It's called uh, COVID-19 and Oil Price War, No One Wins, in which you outline a series of bizarre moves and counter moves between Russia and Saudi Arabia around oil prices. So uh, what are the underlying factors in this conflict and why is it happening now when the planet seems to have uh, a much larger fish to fry? Before you get started, I did want to ask you if you could give us like the most basic, like if you were teaching this like 101, because when I read your article, you know, I, I have been, I try to keep up with what's going on in oil markets, but we focus a lot on utilities and oil is one of those things where there's always just so much going on and it's really hard for me to comprehend how that's affecting the whole ecosystem. So if you could kind of give us like this very basic, like beginner's guide, oil markets 101, what's happening right now, I would really appreciate it. And I think a, a lot of our audience would appreciate it too. Great, happy to do it. Um, so I'll just in terms of even since I wrote that piece, there's been a lot of development. So it's in some ways, it's kind of a yet a, a, a new situation. But if we just sort of start with kind of like the foundational basics, the world consumes approximately 100 million barrels of oil per day. So you have oil producing countries, you know, around the world that contribute to that 100 million barrels of oil a day. Um, China is our is the is the world's largest importer. They are not the largest consumer. The United States consumes the most oil, but because we are also now a um, a big producer. So, for example, in um, in February March we were producing about 12, 12.1 million barrels a day, which is a lot of a lot of oil, right? That's a lot, much more than what we were producing um, just a decade ago. So if you're thinking just about global demand being about 100 million barrels a day, Saudi Arabia and Russia are sort of after the United States, the two largest producers of oil, each contributing between nine and 11 million barrels a day. And Saudi Arabia kind of is the sort of the lead driver, you know, kind of has the steering wheel when it comes to OPEC, which is the, you know, organization of petroleum exporting countries. So because Saudi is the largest producer within that organization, they very much sort of drive decisions. And going back to the last oil price collapse, which happened in 2014, um, in 2016, OPEC changed a little bit because OPEC brought Russia and other non-OPEC producing countries into its fold. And really the most important player in that non-OPEC fold was Russia. Because Russia, again, as I said, is you know one of the top three oil producing countries in the world. So for you know for OPEC bringing Russia into its decisions was going to sort of help it um, help it in terms of price and market. So it became known as OPEC Plus, and you know OPEC Plus you know has pretty much been 
been the kind of the OPEC norm since the end of 2016, 2017. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, OPEC met and OPEC met with Russia and the decision and many analysts believe that um, that there would be that the, that the overall group decision would be to cut production. And then that goes into, you know, why why cut production? Why now? And that then ties into the coronavirus. Right. So if you look at just the the relatively short history of the coronavirus, but it started in China. So, you know, it's, it got, I think it was about December 31st when China reported to the World Health Organization that, you know, coronavirus was, 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 in, the, was in the country and it was predominantly in two, two regions, two provinces. What we saw in China was that Chinese oil demand went down. So as people, again, were, um, were quarantined and we're talking about, you know, large areas, right? So just in that initial quarantine of Wuhan and Hubei, you had approximately 60 million people who were on lockdown. And you saw, that, you know, many, many countries were banning flights in and out of China. So you have this immediate impact go on oil demand, both in China and you started to see it then ripple effect sort of globally because you saw a decrease in demand for jet fuel and you saw factories that were, you know, kind of working at bare minimum in China. So overall demand for oil um, took a sharp hit in China um, and we started to see that demand hit in January. So again, kind of going back to that initial starting place that, you know, if the world consumes 100 million barrels a day, and you have the largest consumer that is seeing a decrease in its demand, that's a very unexpected um, decrease in demand that it wasn't, if you go back four months ago, people were not forecasting that China would see such deep cut in their demand picture. So if you look at January, February, where it's pretty clear from the numbers that China is um, is, uh, is 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 taking and needs less oil. So now you again you take that to March, where not only is the coronavirus in China, but it's also now in Europe, right? It's in Italy, it's in Spain, like you're kind of starting to see the writing on the wall that this is, this is, this is not just limited to China. This is a global pandemic. So when OPEC met on the 6th of March, Saudi Arabia and Russia, again, going back to what I said earlier, the thought was that they, they would reduce production. So they would collectively um, reduce production by a, another 1.5 million barrels a day. And in December, they had already agreed to continue a production cut of 1.7 million barrels a day. So you take this as a whole, now we're, we'd be at 3.2 million barrels a day of production that's taken off the market in order to sort of balance the supply demand picture. And much to many people's surprise, Russia said no. Russia said no, they were not going to cut 
production. Um, so that was on a Friday. I think that was Friday, March 6th. And over the weekend, Saudi Arabia in, you know, what I would described as a kind of a 360 degree um, decision switch decided to increase their own production. So they went from producing nine, 9.1 million barrels a day to announcing that starting in April, April 1st, that they would go to 12.3 million barrels a day. So this, and they also said that they were going to, um, that their price, their price of their crude was now going, they were going to reduce that price. So again, it kind of went against all markets, sort of how we think about markets and the way markets work in terms of, and also Saudi Arabia being kind of a price, price maker that they help set the, the global oil price. Um, and so this came as a big shock and oil collapsed, the price of oil collapsed very quickly. So it went from $50 a barrel to, I think, into the low 30s, high 20s, almost in a very, very, very short period of time. And so since since the 9th of March, you've had this kind of ongoing kind of what has been called kind of oil warfare between Russia and um, Saudi Arabia and, of course, the United States, because depending on, you know, which perspective you look at for Russia, Russia said, why should we reduce our production when the United States is going to continue to pr produce and we will be supporting U.S. shale, shale production? So they've already cut into our market. Why are we going to give up more market share? Um, and then Saudi Arabia pretty much, you know, made it clear that they were going to dig their heels in, not, um, not reduce production as they originally had said that they, um, that they wanted to and continue to flood the market with very, very cheap oil. So what we've seen again is a total price collapse in the last three weeks. Again, we've gone, we went from, you know, 50, mid $50 a barrel oil for Brent crude to $23 a barrel yesterday. It is up today. Now, kind of the larger picture going back to that, you know, original number that I gave at the beginning, 100 million barrels a day. It's, you know, it's a lot of oil. It comes from many different parts of the world. Again, the three big producers are the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. But if you look at today's today's consumption, because you have not you have the United States on lockdown, you have I mean the majority of countries around the world are in some kind of a lockdown. Like 1.3 billion people in India are on lockdown. So you just sort of think about demand for anything. Energy demand is is going to get hit, and oil demand. Mm -hmm. That topic of you know just what I'm speaking about right now is getting clobbered. So the estimate now is that global oil demand will be down about 20 million barrels a day. So going from 100 million barrels a day of the demand to 80 million barrels a day. And some people say that's a very optimistic, 20 is optimistic, that it's probably 20, 25, even more. 
So you have these, you know, you have this, 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 again, you know, kind of going back, Dylan, to your question, like, why now? Like, why have this kind of battle going on when you have a global pandemic and you already have demand destruction? And, you know, it, 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 it didn't make sense when you have prices going down that you're going to add more, you're going to add more product to the market. It just, it's kind of not the way you, you know, it wouldn't be the way that you would think about um, um, strategic decision-making. So I think there's a big question mark now um, and it's become very political. So in the last 24 hours, we've, um, you may have read that um, President Trump has been in communication with both um, uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia, as well as uh, Mohammed bin Salman of, of Saudi Arabia, asking for some kind of truce, asking for some kind of production um, um, cut. And Trump tweeted today that they were going, that they were going to make a 10 million barrel a day production cut. I find that almost impossible to believe. That would mean that <laughs> you, know, you would have to have Russia taking 3 million barrels off, Saudi taking 3, 4 million barrels off, and then the United States taking, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia are not going to take 10 million barrels off. Like they're not going to cut their production unless the United States commits to reducing its own production. And you guys are, you know, Aaron, you're there in Texas. It's going to be very, very hard to tell, you know, shale producers in, in Texas and the Permian that, listen, you have to, you have to stop producing because they're mm -hmm. not, and they're also not supported by the state the same way that Saudi Aramco is, or that the way that Rosneft and Russian oil companies are, there's a much closer relationship between, you know, the, the national governments and their national oil companies. Whereas in the United States, you have, you know, conglomerate of independent producers that have historically been very um, opposed to any kind of production quotas. So, that's kind of the, the situation in a nutshell, but, you know, the announcement today did send oil prices up. But again, what I would anticipate, given the extent of the demand destruction of 20 to 25 million barrels, that even, even a very, like, I, again, I find it very hard to believe that there will be a production cut of 10 million. The only, the only way we kind of, that it's, it's actually much more likely to see 10 million barrels a day is we are looking at already an oversupplied market where, and there's, there's no demand. There's demand is kind of, where does it come from? So where do you take, I mean, China is filling up its, its petroleum reserves, its strategic petroleum reserves. We are doing the same, but there's going to be a point where any production just has no place to go because we're mm -hmm. also very close to getting peak storage where all the storage, think about that. Like that's also global storage is, um, is pretty much almost at capacity. We've hit peak in terms of what we can now fill. So whether you have like storage that has been leased out, for the remaining weeks and months, 
but there's very little new storage capacity that is available. So what, you know, unless you have, unless you have growing demand, you're going to get to a place where there's really, there's no buyers for the oil. So that's kind of what we're looking at over the next couple of weeks, which again, the most pessimistic numbers that we, we, that I hear is that, you know, we're looking at oil going to $9 a barrel, right? So again, just going back one month ago, oil was trading in the fifties. You know, if these really bad forecasts play out, I don't mean bad because they're necessarily bad, but because they're so negative in terms of what they see price. But that if you're looking at $9 a barrel or less, say less, then you have a lot of producers who are, it's, it's uneconomic to produce. If there's, they can't afford to produce because the cost of production is higher than what they can sell a barrel for. Um, I know that was a lot, so I'm happy to go back and. Uh, I just, I will say, um, asking for that production for that reduction in 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 production. I actually, if that was the plan all along, then it puts that shale bailout that didn't end up making it into the stimulus in a lot more context. Um, because if the goal was to get was to give the shale industry money in the time that they're going to be shutting down, almost in the same way that like some utilities do that for third-party power providers like that 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 that, that, that makes more sense a little bit more sense than how they ended up actually selling it that's that's good uh we're actually we actually are short on time i'm uh, i was just wondering if play some, some of the directions that this might play out and what's really at what's really at risk here uh for us you know i think if we're just thinking about the united states i mean the united states has as i said earlier you know they have a lot of independent producers that you know, they already coming into this, you know, very challenging period with COVID-19 were, were on the brink, right? Many, um, many are carrying a lot of debt and that debt, you know, has to, you know, the expectation is that debt is repaid. So we're already starting to see, um, so Whiting Petroleum, for example, announced yesterday that they had filed for bankruptcy. You know, you have a number of companies that are filing for bankruptcy that, you know, can no longer afford to continue producing. So it's going to hit the U.S. kind of oil and I would say gas, um, gas markets very, very hard as it already is. And, you know, not knowing what the, what the duration of this will be is also um, something that is, is very concerning because if we're, you know, if we're talking about, you know, a relatively short period of, you know, a couple of months where we see really, really low prices, but then we see a rebound starting in the summer or fall, but, you know, there is the possibility that this is um, this is much lower for longer on the price side, and that we're not going to see that demand coming back for you know maybe six months or more. And you know, so I think when you look at the U.S. energy landscape as it is today versus what it may look like in six months. Um, I think there's a strong possibility that it will look very different. And I would also just add, because this is something that I, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about and I'm working on some research, 
you know, what I refer to as what are referred to as stranded assets. But when you looking, when sort of thinking about petro uh, petro states, so countries that you know produce uh, produce oil and that are already economically politically fragile, this. This is the breaking point. Like this is where you're going to have very, very deep financial and political instability that um, will have. I, again, I, I fear sort of what it will mean, but I, I don't believe that there's there's any good forecast that you could look at because I think it's a combination of crises at the say at, at one time. So you have. You know, you have countries that are confronting like a healthcare crisis, but they're also confronting a um, the fact that many of them, many petrostates, are heavily dependent on oil revenues for their budgets. So now you take away that 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 revenues supporting a, supporting the budget, and again, I just it's for me it's incredibly incredibly frightening to sort of think about what happens to. You know, countries that are already very, very, very fragile that are now going to be much more vulnerable and potentially become, you know, what we refer to in political science as failed states. Yeah. I mean, and that's a whole extra podcast just talking about the effects on on those countries as well. Uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time uh, in this one. But so if people want to, you know, follow uh, your writing on this conflict. What what uh, writing piece do you have coming up that they should look out for? Yeah, so I just had a piece in the Hill, which kind of looked at Saudi um, Saudi policy, and I it's called sort of Saudi Arabia's like how it's sort of taking kind of a a, a loan approach. It's a kind of a gamble that they're taking in terms of um, what was then through last week, um, what seemed to be their strategy. But again, you know, what comes out today with regards to if if there is some kind of negotiated settlement between the United States, Russia, um, and Saudi. But I still believe that, you know, Saudi Arabia has a, um, has a desire to get its oil out of the ground. And part of that is linked to carbonization, which is, you know, something that I know that um, you all focus a lot on. Um, but, um, and then I'm going to be having a piece coming out, um, in about a week, um, that's going to be looking at stranded assets and the, um, sort of what we're seeing right now that is kind of being, you know, countries that are, that it's oil is uneconomic to produce and what the kind of the, um, implications are for that. Well, excellent. Look forward to, uh, look forward to checking those out as this uh, conflict develops. Um, Dr. Carolyn Kassan, thank you so much for being on, on the podcast. We covered it. We covered a lot, but uh, it was very informative and I, I learned a lot. Well, great. Well, thank you both so much, Aaron and Dylan. Always wonderful to chat with you both and please continue, you know, the great work you're doing. And I think more important also at this time, people are, um, grateful for good coverage and content. So, um, so thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, we appreciate it. Aaron, thanks for talking about the oil conflict and about uh, life during quarantine and education. So thank you, uh, Aaron, for being a part of this conversation as well. Yeah, it was good to learn. I learned a lot today. I talked less, certainly, but I definitely needed to. This is more of a educational podcast for myself. So thank you, Dr. Kassane, for that. Crash course. 
Um, <laughs> but if you're hungry for content while you're quarantined, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at DY Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at zprime underscore research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.